Good morning. Today's scripture passage comes to us from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, specifically verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Grace and peace, hope. I'm incredibly grateful to uh, be with you again this morning. I, of course, I, I just want to continue to to work through the series in Proverbs by looking at wisdom in decision making. Wisdom uh, in decision making. Um, as a pastor to college students, I, I pray I have something uh, helpful to say about this uh, that will be encouraging to you. Um, especially since the most intense question that comes from college students is, man, what in the world am I supposed to do with my life? And uh, so uh, this fall semester, is, as it's uh, uh, coming to an end, I find myself walking students through uh, what happens next from uh, what jobs they're looking into and what graduate schools they attend and where do they need to live and what internships that are uh, for them next. And there seems to be this mounting list of insurmountable questions. To help us, though, Scripture um, gives us this genre of wisdom literature that allows us to understand the way that our world works. It, it deals with everything from these grand philosophical ideas to the more practical realities that should shape our lives each day. Scripture doesn't just give us these ideas on a philosophical level, though, um, because we see them lived out in the lives of those within the narrative of Scripture itself, like Samson, who, despite being gifted by God with these unique abilities, fails over and over again to make wise decisions. Solomon, who... As king asked for wisdom from God in 1 Kings 3, he's described as a pillar of wisdom, and yet my brother couldn't leave the sisters alone. <laughs> and in this kind of poor decision-making, he invites idolatry and the belief in false gods into the land. Before we get too far, though, I, I want to be sure that we're clear in that there are actual distinctions between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, my kids are uh, a part of a generation that has always had information readily available to them with very little effort. Uh, almost everything can seemingly be known is, is posted somewhere online, and, and there is never a shortage of someone who has an opinion in one way or another. And I think scripture is evident in some ways that that this is what knowledge is for us. It, it, it derives from, from shared experiences and skill sets described in places like Proverbs 1 and 7 that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here I contend that scripture suggests that knowledge is only like an entryway as the fear of the Lord, this, this sense of reverential awe, provides us the basis for wisdom that is to come. So wisdom is the fruit harvested from the seeds of knowledge. 
It is the lived experiences of, of life, success, and failures taking us from expertise applied in knowledge to the results of humility and what it means to walk in this life with Jesus. That is what wisdom is. It is what separates lofty idealism from a life shaped by a gracious God at work in us to make us more in the image of his son, Jesus. And so while I know that knowledge might feel like it gives us this awareness of what scripture teaches, it's out of wisdom that we live in obedience to it. Uh, James 1 and 5 tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, to let him ask God who gives generously to all who reproach who, who gives to all without reproach and it will be given to him and God himself is the source of wisdom and here in Proverbs we we find the wisdom for living in the world that far exceeds anything that this world can give us know fam that that Jesus himself is God's gracious wisdom to us and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I, I want to look, though, at this idea of wisdom in decision making by looking at Proverbs 16, 19, at 16, 9, which says, the heart of man pleads his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Uh, it's probably not surprising for uh, most of us that there is actually academic discipline associated with this idea of decision making. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Molnix, who is the chair of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, uh, she describes decision making like this. She says it is uh, the process of making choices by identifying a decision, gathering information, and assessing alternative resolutions. And so then she goes on to create for students this step-by-step -step guide to evaluate what it means to make decisions that are thoughtful and deliberate. And she includes these ideas. She says, um, you got to begin by gathering relevant information. You got to identify alternatives. You got to weigh the evidence. You got to choose among the alternatives. You got to take action. And finally, she says, you have to review the decision and its consequences. I got to ask you, though, is this truly the kind of analytical process that gives us comfort in what keeps us awake at night? We're frozen in the path of crippling anxiety. See, the, the severity of the decisions that we make are, are often confounded by the wisdom of our world and our lack of trust in God. Out of our own wisdom to fix ourselves and work towards self-preservation, we forget a God who is always near to us. He is a, a good and gracious father whose sovereign will stands above all things. And I think my brother Job knows a little bit about this because he says in chapter 42, he says, God, I know you can do all things and that your purpose can never be defeated. And yet, yet we, we find it challenging to rest in knowing that he will always be 
at work for his glory and the good of his people. Ephesians 1 and 11 reminds us that our lives are predestined according to the purpose of his will. And Romans 8:28 reminds us that all things work together for those called according to his purpose. So why do we fear in the decisions that we make? The God who knows the number of hairs on your head, the length of your days on the earth, and even holds the tears you shed in suffering in a bottle has not left or forgotten you. In fact, scripture says that he sent his son Jesus to be the wisdom that this world needs, the perfecter of our faith that even through Adam's decision in the garden that brought about sin, his faithfulness has brought about peace. Even our decision-making and this life is the outworking of what it means to be made in the image of Jesus. <clears throat> know then that our God delights in unveiling his will for our lives. So in, in Christ-like affection, we should seek to make decisions that are for his glory. So how do we know what his will is? I, I think John 16, 13 tells us something that, that can help us. It says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So know that there is guidance in our decision making, that we are led by the spirit, but also know that there is guidance in the word. As Psalms 119 tells us that his word is, is lamp to our feet and light to our path. So our decision making must begin and end with him. The proverb, though, says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. Uh, the heart is revealed in scripture as the place that connects our spirits with our desires and our affections. It is molded after the very heart of God, and yet the heart, tainted by sin, scripture describes as deceitfully wicked, beyond cure, and impossible to understand. Outside of the saving grace of Jesus, our hearts are the core of our own self-deception, and yet we live in a world that tells us to follow your hearts. Jesus teaches that the heart is the place from which comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, uh, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and even slander. So no wonder to turn on the news is to simply watch our world following his heart into the depths of depravity, a deceitful wickedness that cannot be cured and impossible to understand outside of the saving grace of Jesus. And so to follow your own heart, to follow a destiny of faithlessness and instability towards pain and sorrow. See, only God can turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. 
The man who follows his heart follows a way that he has created for himself, a practice rooted in his own sinful desires and the pursuit of self-gratification that does not rest in Jesus. So Jesus comes, friends, that we might have new hearts. Jesus comes and enters the story of humanity, not as one who stands on the outside, merely sympathetic of our sufferings, but on the cross, he embodies our brokenness and sin. He he takes on our sorrow, our guilt, and our shame, taking upon himself the consequences that we deserve so we might be saved. See, the decision-making of our God before the foundation of the world led to the cross is the place where his justice and his mercy meets. What what about our steps being ordered, though? Because Jeremiah 10, 23, he says, he says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Uh, This verse is uh, the admission that we are not our own authority and that the true destiny of our lives is held in the hands of God and he alone orders our steps. The term used here for what it means to be ordered in, in the original language suggests that there is much to our lives that is to be guided and directed and made reliable. It is to to walk in this assurance of of being in the very will of God. It is to know that that the path ahead may seem uncertain, but there is confidence in the protection and provision of God that in his steadfast love for us. This does not mean, though, that that we should be passive in our decision-making, though. But we should trust that God is active and engaged in our lives. Knowing that he is opening doors and and shutting others and even in the areas of, of needed correction, he is forever gracious towards us. So we trust our hearts in him. We rest in and knowing that he wants what is good for us. And we pray that each new day that is full of his mercy, is guided by him, and the wisdom of the decisions we make are a direct result of what it means to trust him and his glorious design for our lives. So when my students ask if they should go to grad school or straight into the workforce, I can simply say yes. (laughs) But, you know, When we ask these questions, most of the time, what we're really looking for is not guidance in the decisions we make, but we're looking for ways to navigate our own stories, for ways to place blame when we don't get what we want in life. So we function as if somehow we can mess up God's will for our lives, if if he's not God. So our decisions are driven by our fears and the inability to trust our God's absolute sovereignty. 
The life of ordered steps is one of great freedom and liberty, peace and joy. And no matter what decision you make, you can know that he will forever be faithful and walks with you throughout all of life. I don't want to leave us only to to think of it as as matters of the heart and ordered steps, but I want to look at what this looks like in Scripture from my brother Jonah, um, the prophet. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of Jonah. He was a prophet in Israel during uh, the reign of a king named Jeroboam, uh, who, though he is described as an evil king, was actually pretty successful in expanding the borders of Israel. And under Jeroboam, Israel is seen as this place of thriving, and and Jonah is likely recognized in this as a voice of wisdom. And he's called by God, though, to to then give witness of the pending destruction in the, the, the place of Israel's biggest enemy in the city of Nineveh. This, of course, is not in Jonah's plans by any means, so he decides, nah, Uh, I'm going on my way to Tarshish. And you'd have to see this on the map to fully understand the magnitude of what Jonah does because you'd see God telling him to go one way and Jonah decides he's going to go in completely the opposite direction. And so Jonah, he hops on a boat to Tarshish and he falls asleep only to be awakened by the ship's crew fighting the winds and waves of a raging storm. Finally, Jonah decides to confess that the one true and living God is at work in this storm. And so he offers himself. He says, throw me overboard. And he's thrown into the sea. As Jonah goes down, though, he he finds himself being saved uh, swallowed by a big fish, and there, needless to say, homeboys start praying something serious. <laughs> and from the belly of this fish, Jonah prays, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pray. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The third chapter, though, tells us in Jonah uh, that he gets spit out on land by the fish. And, and though reluctant, he, he gives the people this message to turn from their wickedness. And in humility, it says that they repent. And despite the way that scripture speaks of the celebration that takes place in heaven when sinners turn and repentance, Jonah is not having it. In the fourth chapter, Jonah tells God, he says, Oh, Lord, is, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Something interesting I found is that Jonah is a book that within the Jewish tradition is always pretty annually read at Yom Kippur. Uh, It's considered the holiest of days and uh, it acknowledges the way that our very souls are afflicted with sin and the need for the Messiah. So it's a a time of, of fasting and earnest prayer. But the priest would would go into the temple to offer these sacrificial offerings on on behalf of the people. And Jonah is read, though, as a reminder um, that it is impossible to escape the will of God. 
but also it's a reminder of God's righteous demands for the transgressions of sin that they must be fulfilled. And yet we can know also that God is faithful in showing mercy to those who turn to him. And when the call of God came to Jonah, he couldn't see past his selfish pride and arrogance towards the Assyrians. So he questions how God could show mercy and kindness towards them. It would seem as if Jonah, who had already endured so much, would have his heart softened. But, but the way that he questions God after seeing the people's true repentance is a reminder that God is gracious even in our rebellion. Something I found interesting about when Jonah is read at Yom Kippur is that at the end of the reading, the people would respond together, we are Jonah. Because I'm sure many of us are fighting God in some way. You're walking in this willingness to live for God, but your heart, the place I mentioned where your heart's affections and desires meet, you find are actually pretty far from him. And you're running on your way to Tarshish and somehow you find yourself in a fish and you think that this is the end. And this is only just a reflection of God's enduring mercy towards you because he needs you to know that your salvation is about him and not about you. And when you see God working, not in the way that you want him to, you start to see that he's ordering your steps, moving you away from your foolish heart and into his will. You know, the primary reason that, that we can believe that this story of Jonah is true is because Jesus himself believed it. Jesus also in the gospel talks about the prophets Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah, but you never notice you, you ever notice the way that he speaks differently about the story of Jonah? In Matthew 12, Jesus uh, identifies himself with the story of Jonah as foreshadowing his own death and resurrection, which the author of Hebrews, I'm sure, is thinking about when he writes um, chapter 2, verse 17, that says that therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is a payment for the sins of the people. So on the cross, God demonstrates his perfect justice and mercy. God executes this justice by pouring out his wrath against sin on his only son and showing mercy by absorbing that wrath on himself so we can escape his judgment. In unimaginable pain and agony, Jesus on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we're honest, we got to hear this and say, my God, my God, how could you accept me? How could you love me? Thankfully, this isn't the end, though, because in Luke 23 and 34, Jesus' cries turn to Father, forgive. That's why today we can sing songs like when I surveyed the wondrous cross. 
on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord established his steps. See, when we read this text through the lens of the gospel, we are reminded of just how true it is in our own lives. As despite the way that our hearts were once inclined to the wickedness of this world, we look back at the video of our lives, we find our steps have been ordered by him. This is the wisdom. Maybe, you, maybe you're hearing this message and you recognize that, and there's, there's something missing in the decisions that I'm making in this life. And you know that there's something that has to change. And if that's you, I, I want you to know that his mercy and his grace is sufficient even for you. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for the sending of your son, Jesus. The wisdom, Father, that we need that that we can find nowhere else but you. Father, that in the decisions that we make in this life, Father, they would be first and foremost aligned to your will and purpose for our lives, Father, and that we would seek to, to glorify you even in our thought processes, of, processes of, of what it means to live in a life that is honoring you. And Father, I pray that from this, this encouragement, from from seeing the, the horrible decisions that Jonah makes in, in, in his life, Father, but the way, Father, that you are still good and glorious and drawing people faithfully to yourself, even in our rebellion. I pray that from this, this message, Father, that you, my friends in this room would be strengthened and encouraged, Father, to continue on in the faith in you through the decisions that they make. And Father, we thank you for these things in this name that is above all others. Amen.